Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 14. I started to say I apologize for having a quite lengthy introduction to the message, but I, I really don't because it's needful. With Easter being just around the corner, I want to preach this morning a message entitled The Road to Calvary and uh, the next few weeks up to Easter, we'll be talking about that. You know, there have been many paintings, many songs, many poems, many sermons about the road to Calvary. And as we approach Easter, I want to invite you to go along on a journey with me. And I'm not talking about the religious procession, you know, taken by many people each year along the streets of old Jerusalem and you know, their intentions might be good, but their traditions oftentimes lead many people astray. And I've got something better than that in mind. I want to take you on a journey through the Word of God and that we might retrace, as it were, the steps of our Savior. The traditional pilgrimage uh, is Via Della Rosa which simply means the way of suffering, the way of sorrow, the way of grief. And, and it starts on Palm Sunday in Bethany, proceeds to Jerusalem, makes 14 stops along the way. I want to remind you that the road to redemption started long before that, long before even the foundation of the world began. Before God ever created man, he already knew exactly what the outcome would be. In his divine wisdom, he foresaw the fall of man. Out of the depths of his great love, he devised a plan whereby sinful man might be redeemed, reconciled to a holy God. And he himself introduced that plan as far back as Genesis chapter Number three, where he speaks about the seed of the woman. And so we know that from the very beginning that God had this in mind. It's not some emergency plan God had to throw into, deer, uh, into gear to get us out of the ditch, so to speak. But it's something that God knew was going to happen. He planned for it. The prophets proclaimed it. The Scriptures promised it. And the Jews, all throughout the years of the Old Testament, looked forward to it. Finally, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Amen. When God knew the time was exactly right, Jesus came into the world, lived upon this earth 33 and a half years. The Scriptures declare His virgin birth, His virtuous life, His vicarious death, His victorious resurrection, his valuable intercession. It speaks also about his vast reign that someday will take place. But I simply want to pick up the story as the Lord met with the disciples there in the upper room. I'm not going to read the account. It's found in John chapter number 18. But that's actually where the story begins as we think about the road to Calvary. And it was there in the upper room we find the enlightenment of the apostles. The Lord gathered them together, and this event is so meaningful, so marvelous, that I can't even begin to 
fathom the depths of it, and I could exhaust myself speaking about the wonders of it. But for the disciples, it was a time of instruction. It was a time meant for inspiration as the Lord laid out for them His plan. And I'm certain that it left a lifelong impression upon each and every one of them. There's an old song entitled, In the Upper Room. But there's nothing that can compare to the actual event. And as I've gone through John chapter 13 and through chapter number 17, I've often wondered what it would have been like, you know, to be a, a fly on the wall and be able to actually see and to feel and to sense what must have been going through the minds of those disciples at that time. The next best thing to that, of course, is to read what the Bible says about it. So we begin there with their enlightenment there in the upper room, but we pick up now Mark 14, verse 26, and the next step we take is en route to the garden. Verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives, and Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. And likewise also they all said. After singing a hymn, Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room They crossed the brook Ketron, which means dark or gloomy waters, and they journeyed toward the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane, which simply means the oil press, the place where the olives were put in the press and the the oil was extracted from it. And I, I can't think of a more fitting word for what lay ahead when we think about the suffering of Christ. And you can forget about all of those pretty pictures, you know, depicting Jesus calmly bowed in prayer, there with the moonbeams dancing around his head. Gethsemane was a place of agony. And Jesus had warned them what was to come, but nothing could prepare them for what was about to happen. So they go into the garden with him. And then look at verse 32. We see them entering into the garden. It says in verse 32, And they came to a place which is called Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. As they entered into the garden, Jesus says, You sit here and wait at the entrance And notice the next words. He says, while I shall pray. He had gone there for that very purpose. In fact, Luke tells us that he was accustomed to doing so. 
This was a place of solitude. It was a place where he could pray without being interrupted. But this night was unlike any other night, unlike any other time in his life. And now he is near at death's door, and he knows that his time has come. And then we read of the experience in the garden, beginning in verse number 33, where it says he retired for prayer. And it says, And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the eye might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Question mark. Couldest not thou watch? One hour. You know, there's so many details here that we don't have time to to discuss. And I don't want to stray away from the main thing, and that is the fact that Jesus prayed. And notice it says that his soul was exceeding sorrowful unto death. It's interesting to me that he's not trying to hide his feelings but rather that he puts his feelings on full display in front of the disciples. And he is pouring out his soul because he already knows what is about to happen. Before the nails are ever driven into his hands, before the cross is ever lifted and dropped with a thud in the in the ground before he is hanging there writhing in anguish and pain before any of that Jesus already knows what's going to happen you see Jesus was born to die he lived with the shadow of the cross upon him he's not surprised by any of this and every step along the way he was reminded of that day and that time as he watched the Jews bring the animals for sacrifice, it reminded him that he, as the Lamb of God, one day would be that sacrifice depicted by all of those others. No doubt whenever he looked at the rose, the very thorns must have reminded him that one day they will crown me with thorns. Everything was a reminder of the fact that he was born to die. And now here he is in the garden pouring out his heart to the Father. And notice it says that he went a little further and he fell and he prayed. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but if I understand that from what the scholars say, that that is in the imperfect tense, I believe they call it, where it was repeated over and over and over. In other words, as he goes, he stumbles, he falls, he gets up and he goes and he falls again. And so here he is in, in the garden and it says, Notice, if it were possible, if it were possible that the eye might pass from him. That's verse 35. And then he says, Take away this cup, verse 36. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. You say, well, preacher, I, I don't really understand why it is the Son of God who has 
complete knowledge of everything. The Son of God who is living in total submission to the will of the Father and the the Son of God who knows that all of this is a part of God's perfect plan of redemption. Why would He say something like that? Well, if you could understand what all is implied by that word cup, you'd see the reason for it. If you could understand the the suffering that Jesus Christ was about to endure. And even as we try to describe it, and preachers have done that over the years, you know, we try to talk about the driving of the nails in His hands and, and, and you know, just go through the whole scenario. In fact, there have been physicians that have written about it and how it must have affected His body. And we look at all of the emotional stress and we think about the physical suffering and all of that. And when all is said, and done, we've still not even touched the hem of the garment concerning His suffering because of the fact that the great suffering that He was to go through was to be separated from the Father for the first time in all of eternity. The fellowship between the Father and the Son to be broken there in the darkness of Calvary when the sins of the whole world was laid upon Him. And Jesus knew that this This was in the cup. The sorrow and the anguish, and it's no wonder that out of the depths of His humanity, He says, take away this cup from Me, and nevertheless not what I will. He's simply expressing the fact that from the human standpoint that he had no desire to experience the torment that awaited him. But he also knew that there was no other way to rescue fallen man. And he's willing to face the Father's wrath in order to do the Father's will. And the great thing about it, according to Hebrews chapter 12, he did it with joy. Don't ever forget that. It was not with reluctance that Jesus went to the cross, but He endured the shame of the cross with joy because He knew this was pleasing to the Father. And I ask you, does the will of God mean that much to you? Are you that concerned about the will of God for your life? Here is our example He's retired for prayer in the depths of the garden. And now notice verse 37, that he returned to the disciples. It says, And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simeon, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. To their shame, he finds them sleeping, and as a result of that, he rebukes them. But notice that he starts with Peter. Why would he do that? Well, maybe it's because Peter is the one that had just boasted about his courage, had just pledged his fidelity to the Lord. He said, Lord, everybody else might forsake you, but you can count on me. I'll never fail you. Then he addressed the others in verse number 38, and notice he tells them, in light of Peter's failure and the fact that they're all asleep, he says, watch and pray. Notice now, lest ye enter into temptation. You see, this is a call for them to prepare 
for the danger that is ahead. He's not asking them and you know to pray for him that in some way that God will change his plan. He's not looking for a way out of suffering for himself. But even at this moment in his life and facing the cross, he's expressing his concern for them. And he says, watch and pray. And then notice verse 39, he repeated his prayer. Verse 39, and again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. I underlined that in my Bible, spake the same words. I think a lot of folks have misunderstood what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 7 about vain repetition. And certainly we're not to use vain repetition, but there are times when it is appropriate to repeat our prayers even word for word just as Jesus did. And I think far too many times we pray about something maybe one time. In fact, I've heard preachers Preachers talk about it. You know, if you're really praying in faith, all you need to do is just ask God one time and go go on your way. Well, you know, maybe there's some kind of a super saint and and they know something that I don't know, but I I I've, I found out in a lot of cases it's been necessary for me to pray about something over and over and over again. There have been times that has gone on for years about matters that I that I pray things I prayed about. Jesus prayed again the same words, word for word, the same prayer. Now notice verse forty. Having repeated his prayer, he next roused the disciples, and when he returned, he found them sleep asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And neither wish they what to answer him. How amazing that they've gone to sleep again. And notice that they didn't answer. They didn't answer because they knew they didn't have any excuse. They knew that they had failed. There was no explanation for it, no excuse that could get them out of it. But it's so amazing that in a moment like this that they've gone back to sleep. You know, it's real easy for me to judge them from afar. After all of these years have passed by, with the completion of the Bible and being able to read the entirety of God's Word, it's so easy for me to look back at them and to condemn them for their actions. And certainly they were wrong. The Lord rebuked them. There's no doubt about it. But I've got to wonder if I would have done any better. I'm afraid that I would have failed far worse than what they did. Sometimes we forget that whenever a person is under pressure, that they act out of character. I'm certain that every Christian in this building right now can think of some moment in time where you did something, you knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway, but there was pressure upon you, and you just caved in. This is why he's telling them to watch and to pray, not to go back to sleep. Now notice verse 41 
Now he reveals the betrayal. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now, take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up and let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. Sleep on. But mark it well, he's not approving. He had just warned them, and now the time for watching is over. You see, there are times when we ought to watch and we ought to pray, and there are times when we've reached that place, perhaps crossed that deadline to where now it's too late. The opportunity is over, and now and now the wheels are set into motion. We look back on our life and we think of all of those many times where we had an opportunity. And it might be that, you know, while, while we didn't go to sleep and sleep through it, it might be that we were so preoccupied with the things of this world that we had no interest in it. However you want to look at it, there's so many times that we fail to redeem the time and we neglect our responsibility, we ignore the Christian disciplines, and all of a sudden we find ourselves on the horns of a dilemma that we can't get out of. So now the Lord says the hour is come. The next step we see is them exiting the garden. Turning your Bibles over to John, it's actually recorded here beginning in verse 43. But I want you to notice John's account, John chapter number 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth, and his disciples over the brook Ketron, where was a garden into which he entered, and his disciples, and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples, and Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am, notice he is italicized in your Bible, I am, and Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground, and then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the same might be fulfilled which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Next week we'll discuss the details of this, but I want you to get that picture in your mind. Here they are in the garden, and as they begin to leave, all of a sudden you can see the flickering of the torches and you can hear the whisper of voices and the crackling of the underbrush. And all of a sudden, Judas leading this band of men into the garden, seek him out. You see, Jesus, Judas has sold him out. 
and he is about to betray him. And Jesus, knowing exactly what is going on, says, Whom seek ye? They don't say we're looking for Jesus. We're looking, you know, we're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for the one to redeem us from our sins. No. They use his earthly name there. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. That's the place out of which they said nothing good could come. You better believe they had that in mind whenever they made that statement. We're looking for Jesus, his earthly name. We're we're just looking for that man that came out of Nazareth, the place from where nothing good comes. Whenever the Lord answered, I am, and I've often thought of all of the things that he could have said after that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end and the first and the last. I'm the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valley. And on and on and on and on. And instead of that, he just says, I am. And then he surrenders himself. You read on and you'll notice that whenever he spoke, all of a sudden they went backward and fell to the ground and they came to arrest him and now there they are, flat on their back, on the ground and they find themselves at his mercy. And rather than call 10,000 angels, he just allows himself to be taken into custody going from one mockery of a trial to another and finally to be crucified. Like the old song says, He did it all for me. I just about come unglued a while ago whenever we started singing that that one song, Oh, what a Savior. And I, I can remember back years and years ago, this has been probably 40 years ago, and I... Some way or another, I got a record by Rosie Roselle and the Searchers. Probably none of you ever even heard of those folks, except Wendell. He's old enough to remember them. And Rosie Roselle had a really high voice. Boy, he'd get down to that part, oh, hallelujah, what a Savior. And I've sat and I've listened to that hundreds and hundreds of times, over and over, thinking about what a... What a great Savior we have. Oh, hallelujah, what a Savior. And here we see Him placing Himself in the custody of these these wicked men. Next week, we'll continue on that journey on the road to Calvary. But the question now is, how shall we respond to what we already know? Looking at what has taken place here along that road, how does that impact you and I? It ought to affect us so far as our worship is concerned. Whenever we consider the greatness of his suffering, I mean, how you know, how can we not be moved emotionally? I, how can we not take time to praise him and to thank him for such great love? To walk along that road and to consider all he's gone through 
And to not be moved by that is a sure sign that we need revival. It's a sure sign that we have the same problem they had at the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2 and verse number 4 when the Lord said, I've got somewhat against you because you've left your first love. He didn't say you've lost it. He didn't say that you've... You know, that you've gone totally against Christ, but rather you've left it. You, it's as though that you've crowded the first love out of your life. You, you've ignored Him. And sometimes we do that. And we need to realize as we come together and sing the, the great hymns of the faith and listen to the Word of God, that it ought to move us in worship. But it ought to affect not only our worship, but our willingness also. You notice whenever the Lord said, not as I will, but as you will. And and you think about the fact that he died in order to please the Father. He died in order to do the will of God. If he died to do God's will, we ought to live for the same purpose. It also should affect our work. Jesus said over in the book of John chapter 9, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. And even so, you and I need to be busy about the master's business. As we sit here today and as we reflect upon the great sacrifice that Jesus made for us, let us never forget that all around us, whether it's your co-worker, your classmate, or your next-door neighbor, or one of your relatives, all around us there are those that are strangers to His saving grace. They know nothing about the peace and the joy that comes from knowing Christ. We need to be busy at work trying to reach them before it's too late. It also, I think, should affect us in the matter of watching and praying this is where they failed. I sat down yesterday and I just, out of curiosity, I, I counted up the number of times watch is used and here in the, in the New Testament in 31 verses, in 29 verses, it's used 31 times. Now you could say the Lord is really trying to get our attention. That we need to watch. We need to, we need to be ever alert lest Satan gets the advantage of us. And if you're here today and you've been distracted and you've gone astray, this would be, this would be the ideal time for you to, for you to come back and get back to that place in your Christian life where you need to be. And it's not going to happen by accident. It's going to happen whenever we're willing to go back to that place where we took off in the wrong direction and deal with the issue that got us sidetracked. And if we sin, we need to confess that sin before the Lord. I sat in the office this morning, and one of my very favorite verses is over in Second Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 4 is one of my top four or five chapter favorites in all of the Bible. But I want you to notice verse 18. 
Where Paul said, but we all with open face, that is an unveiled face, nothing in between, nothing to block the view, beholding as in a glass, and we would say today in a mirror, and we look at, notice, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. One reason I've asked you to go on this journey with me these next few weeks and to go back and to retrace Calvary's road and to think about this is that we, that we might keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, as we, as we do, and remember he tells us looking into Jesus, the author and the finisher of the faith, and it says that we are to consider him. And how do we consider him? Well, we do what we've done today. We retrace his steps. We think about the price that he paid for us. And something amazing happens. We so many times talk about making changes, and we've misunderstood Christianity. We've made it all about doing, when in reality it's not about doing, it's about being. And we become what we ought to be by what? Beholding, beholding, he says, the glory of the Lord. And as we do that, what happens? We are changed, and notice who the change agent is, the Holy Spirit. It's not us. It's not us changing. You know, I'm changing my life. I want to be more like Jesus. That, let me tell you, that will never work. Your intentions might be good, but your flesh is weak and you're going to fail. I'm trying to get you to see how we ought to respond to the truths that we've talked about this morning. And the purpose in all of this is that your focus will be on Jesus Christ so that in doing so you will be changed into His likeness from glory to glory. And we should add to glory to glory to glory until we get to glory. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Never forget the price He paid for you. And if you're here and you've never received Christ as your Savior, we invite you to do so today. We encourage you. We beg you today. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. You might never have another opportunity. But right here, right now, today, He has promised to save those who trust Him. I hope you'll do that while we stand. Our Father in Heaven, how we thank You for... The truth of your word, how we thank you for not just the guidance, the information that it gives, but Lord, for the, for the inspiration it provides, for the way that it moves our hearts and changes our life. Lord, I pray you'll forgive me of those moments of the day when I'm so occupied with other things that, that I neglect to think upon you as I should. Help us to live day by day with our eyes on the Savior. And Heavenly Father, for, for that one here today that maybe is a stranger to your saving grace, I pray that this very day they might come to know Christ and the free pardon of sin and be born again and leave here with joy bells ringing in their heart. For we beg it in Jesus' dear name.